You know, God, we are a people who have come to celebrate the greatness and the beauty of our Savior. We are a people whose eyes have been opened to see him in all of his effulgence. We have seen him in his saving work, and he has become ours, our our king, our savior, our friend, our leader, our guide. He, in our eyes, is altogether lovely. And we come to worship him this morning and pray that by the power and might of the Holy Spirit, you will create within us this ability that we don't naturally have, an ability to lay hold of that which is divine, to lay hold of that which is eternal, and that it, that that transaction might change us, might bring us into conformity more and more to that of Jesus Christ's. Our Father, we continue to pray for our nation. She seems to become more and more hostile, more and more divided. We pray that you will give somebody some sense of urgency for a return to righteousness. Use the church of Jesus Christ to raise up men and women who are determined to see righteousness rule. Father, we pray for the nation of France that is torn now with all kinds of political and and social and religious strife. And again, use the church of Jesus Christ, the, the very heirs to the Prince of Peace. Use the church to point people in a direction of a solution, that being repentance for sin. Our Father, we thank you for the ways that you have provided for us here at Gracie Van, individually and corporately. We are a very blessed people and pray that you will never allow us to forget that it's not the blessing that brings us joy. It's the one who gave the blessing. It's not the gift. It's the giver who is such a delight in our souls. Now, Lord, we get a privilege of responding to all of your bounty to us with bounty in return. Take all that we have. And use it for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you. Okay, are you in uh, Romans chapter 14? I'm only going to read you one verse out of there. Uh, and I'll explain more of it uh, later. That is the context. This is not the way you read your Bibles. You don't pull a verse out of the middle of a paragraph like I'm about to do. But um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to explain later on. It's simply verse 17. Romans 14, 17, which states simply this. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let me remind you just real quickly of the theme of this series that we're in in the fall. And maybe you're tired of hearing it, but it's a, it indeed represents the, the, the very proposition, the guts of what I'm trying to communicate. It's simply this. We were made, we were intended, we were designed to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king to whose kingdom we belong and where our joy can be found. That's what I'm trying to communicate. Guys, we were designed to do something. We were designed to live as glad-hearted subjects of a good king. We belong to that kingdom. 
And that's where our joy is going to be found. That's what this is all about. Gang, I am seeking this morning, and I have sought in the previous weeks, to try and establish in your minds that becoming a Christian does not simply mean that my sin is forgiven and I'm on my way to heaven. It does mean that, but it means far more. It doesn't simply involve me getting a ticket to heaven stuck in my pocket and sprayed with some coat of asbestos. It's, it's far more than that. It, it, it is, indeed, my assurance that I'll spend an eternity in heaven, but it's more than that. A Christian has a new king, and we belong to that king. And very honestly, as you well know, he's a vastly different king than the king of the majority. We, we live according to rules and values that have been outlined by this king, by our new king. We live in a kingdom where the rule of God is preeminent, which summons us to a new life of obedience and, and, and conformity to the image of Jesus Christ. Gang, the, the New Testament calls people like us, they call us aliens, strangers, pilgrims, because we, we have been, we, we used to be citizens of one kingdom, but now we're citizens of another kingdom. We're a city within a city. The kingdom of God was the, was the theme of Jesus' life and ministry. When he begins his ministry in Mark chapter 1, it simply states that he began to announce the kingdom of God is at hand. His parables, all of his parables, are designed to give you some kind of insight, some kind of glimpse, some kind of understanding about the kingdom of God. For, for, for Jesus to announce and bring the kingdom of God created a crisis, ladies and gentlemen, a crisis for every man. Because either you entered in or you opposed it. But to enter into this kingdom meant that you underwent a complete transformation. It was to reorient the entirety of your lives. The New Testament word that's used is the word metanoia. A conversion. We have undergone a conversion, a change of mind. And everything that goes along with that. And that conversion has put us on a collision course with our own culture. We saw some of that last week. I talked to you about our view of truth. Because, guys, what has happened to us is that we, we have become... Citizens of a new kingdom. We've, we've changed kingdoms. We moved out of one kingdom and we moved into another kingdom. And that means over in this new kingdom. Not only are you forgiven and on your way to heaven. Yes, that's true. But it's far more. Far more. And that's what I'm trying to outline for you. Uh, in the weeks in the past and a couple of few in the future. But 
my goal as we close out this series, and, and don't get too excited, we've still got three or four more, but um, as we close it out, is to look at what, what I think, just my humble opinion, are some, some ways that these two kingdoms differ. There are dozens of ways that they differ. But I want to pick some rather broad headings, which I, um, I hope will help us expose some of the lies that we have been subject to in that other kingdom. Um, for instance, the category, which is pretty broad this morning, the one I want to look at this morning is the category of beauty. One of the key differences I'm suggesting between the two kingdoms is how we define beauty. You know, beauty is a powerful thing. It's a dangerous thing. According to Greek mythology, uh, it was beauty that launched a thousand ships and started a war that lasted for ten years. When a, when a Trojan prince by the name of Paris went after another man's wife, the man, his name is Menelaus. I think you know his wife's name. But when I say beauty, that's what normally pops into the minds of people. Helen. You know, um, as I was in the midst of putting this series together, there were, there were two articles that were in the USA Today uh, about the beautiful. They appeared in the same day. About four beautiful people. The first was Kate Moss. You know that name? The, the 31-year-old supermodel who um, entered herself into a drug rehab uh, hospital in Arizona after she was photographed snorting cocaine. That was one of the articles. The other article had to do with Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston. Um, the article, or the author of the article, knows more than I do, but he said they didn't have a chance. And uh, that now Brad Pitt was cavorting with uh, Angelina Jolie, who has to have some kind of Botox in those lips. But, um, um, <laughs> but the, the article went on to say that uh, they don't have a chance either. Well, I don't know whether they do or don't, I, but I'm simply saying those are four beautiful people uh, and to whom our hearts ought to go out as they wrestle with their own pain. I, I'm sure they don't give one wit about what some puny preacher in Germantown, Tennessee has to say about them. And I'm not really wanting to say anything about them. My hope is that, that they would uh, come to faith in Christ while the rest of us spend our time talking about how beautiful they are. Gang, my, my only purpose in mentioning them is to say that when, when, when I speak of a kingdom definition of beauty, I'm not talking about that. Um, I, I'm not talking about blondes versus brunettes, eye candy. I, I'm referring to something much bigger, much deeper, something that will captivate far more than your eyes. So let me try to explain what I'm talking about when I talk about a kingdom definition of beauty. Um, back in the 60s, during the, the great proletarian cultural revolution in China. Um, the leader of that cultural revolution, Mao Zedong, um, was very skeptical about beauty and dismissed it as a bourgeois concept. 
and, and, and as a result, he, he tried to stamp it out. He uh, instructed the Red Guards to close all the flower shops. And people were ordered to destroy their goldfish. And everybody was to dress alike. They were to, they were to dress in these, these drab, unisex, unicolor uniforms. And so China became a very drab-looking country, at least on the surface. What was actually happening, uh, we found out later, is that women began to grow flowers in their home. They would put on uh, brightly colored blouses underneath their drab uniforms, and children would raise their, their goldfish and hide them in jars under beds. Until the, the laws of China were changed, bringing beauty back into the open, beauty existed as kind of a dangerous, hidden secret. Kind of a rumor of another world. Not to be allowed in the ongoing development of our, our, our cultural revolution. But China found out that you couldn't stomp it out because people couldn't live without beauty. The first time Susie and I ever visited um, the Ukraine, we visited a city in southern Ukraine, Odessa. It's on the Black Sea. And uh, many of the memories that we have of that, of that trip are not all that pleasant. It was an ugly, dirty city. Everything was rusted out. There was dog poop all over the sidewalks. You didn't want to walk at night because you were afraid what if you step in. The people were um, all, it was a very poor populace. The buildings were broken down and the cars and the buses were rusted out. And yet one of our observations was, it was very strange to see these people who didn't appear to have two dimes to rub together. They would have scarves over their head and they were in tattered and, and dirty clothes and they didn't have any teeth in their mouth. But they were all carrying a flower or a bunch of flowers. You know, you could buy a bunch of angel's breath over there for about a quarter. And, and it was a very odd looking sight. They would be walking on the streets in these broken down shoes and, and, and tattered clothes and, and no teeth in their mouth. And they'd have one bag with a, with a loaf of bread for whatever they, for a week, I guess. I don't know. And then they, on the other hand, they had a flower or a bunch of flowers. You know, there's something that in us, in us that makes us long for beauty. There's something in us that resonates with beauty. We've been made alive by God the Holy Spirit, and now we have this, this, this other longing, this, this, this eternal itch, something um, that will bring our lives into alignment with the way that we've been designed. You know, gang, I, that's one of the best illustrations I think I've ever had. Have you ever tried to drive, drive a car that's frame was bent out of alignment? Oh, it'll drive. I mean, it'll go down the road. Have you ever seen one that's, that's driving with the frame that's bent? I mean, it eats up tires, as you all know, but it, it, it'll drive, it'll perform. But there's something just not right about it. And what we're searching for is something that would, would align us, would realign us with what, with the, with the 
with our design. And so having moved out of that other kingdom, we have begun our search for beauty. Beauty with a capital B. But all of our training has come from that, that other kingdom that we lived in for so long. The kingdom that shouts at us about position and wealth and security and safety and possessions and portfolio. The culture has pushed us in a direction. And we haven't yet figured out that it's the wrong direction. And so all of our attempts at discovering beauty, they're all fairly predictable. They're all fairly alike. We're pretty much all trying to get the same stuff. And yet every now and then, we experience something. We experience something that reminds us the car just isn't in line. There's something, there's something beyond this. I, I, I met two women this summer that I want to tell you about. I have changed the names to protect the innocent. But we'll call the first woman Linka. It's not her name, but we'll just call her Linka. Linka was 68 years old. She appeared to be quite poor. Um, at the age of five, she and her entire family was interned at a concentration camp in Poland erected by Adolf Hitler. She was Jewish. How she got into the conference where I was speaking, I don't know, and, and, and I asked, and nobody else seemed to know how she got in there. She came on the first night, on the Monday night that I spoke, and I spoke about naturalism. And she was so incensed over the subject that when she left, she said, I'm not coming back here. But she did. And on Thursday, she introduced herself to one of the ladies who runs this ministry where I spoke, KBZ. And she said to this lady who works for, works with KBZ, she says, I want Jesus. But I'm going to have to pray and think about this some more. Because it's pretty hard to become a Christian when you've lived all of your life as an atheist. You see, in the concentration camp, her entire family was murdered. She was the only survivor of her family. And when she left at age 10, she had concluded there couldn't be a God if something like this could happen. And here she was, 58 years later, saying to someone who understood what she was saying, it's hard to become a Christian when you've lived your entire life as an atheist. Then I met a woman whose name, we're going to call her Danka. 
That wasn't her name, but her um, Danka was a 26-year-old physician. She was cute as a bug's ear to me. I mean, I really thought she was cute. She was kind of redheaded, kind of a strawberry blonde, really um, cute thing, I thought. And, and I talked with her several times. She really became one of my favorites. And um, on the last day that I was there, on, on Sunday, I was having lunch with her, and, and I said to her, you know, Danka, these guys are idiots not to sweep you up off your feet and carry you away. And she said, oh, no, 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 no. And then for the next few minutes, she began to explain to me why men would not find her attractive. You know what, gang? I have never been in a conversation where a woman was telling me why she was unattractive to men. I've been in many who've told me why they're attractive to men. But I've never been in one where the woman was telling me, oh, I understand why men don't find me attractive. And here's her story. She had for many years wrestled with depression. And she was on antidepressants. And I was shocked. I was shocked not because she was on antidepressants. I was glad she was on antidepressants. I was shocked that a woman who is wrestling with depression would consider that her wrestling had rendered her unbeautiful. And so I spent the next 15 or 20 minutes trying to convince her. I don't know that I did, but I I spent the next 15 or 20 minutes trying to convince her that just because she has wrestled around with depression some doesn't necessarily mean that she's some kind of inferior substandard product. She wept. I wept. But here's my point. You know, in the midst of dealing with her and hearing of Linka, I never once thought about how much money I had in the bank. I never thought about what kind of car I drive or what my favorite restaurant is. All I wanted to do is anything that I could possibly do to try and help those two women. There was a certain zest to my life. There was a certain vitality of my soul that I that I don't experience all the time, ladies and gentlemen. I, I, I challenge you. Go speak to some of these college kids that went to the Czech Republic and ask them ask them about um Alesh. And ask them about um Lumiere. Ask them. Because guys, we tasted something. We tasted something that was very sweet, and we want to taste more of it. Tell me, when did you last taste that? And what was it over? Did you taste it when you bought yourself a new car? Did you taste it when you heard that the stock market just went up? I bet not. And let me take a wild stab. I bet the last time you tasted something like that had something to do with people. With relationships. Folks. 
God's kingdom doesn't shout at you. It whispers at you and tugs at you. And it says, beauty is over here. It's not over there. It's over here. Guys, I've been saying from the beginning, back on uh, Labor Day weekend, that living outside the Shire requires a change in how we define beauty. What is beautiful to you? What satisfies you? What, what do you live to produce? How, how can we pursue real beauty? What steps can we take to enliven those new loves that lie deep in our soul that have been buried under stuff? Well, wouldn't I be brilliant if I could answer all those questions? I can't answer all of them. But I can answer some of them. And that's what I want to do with my last ten minutes. And next week, I want to try and address some of those questions I just raised. And to do so, I want to allude to my text. Romans fourteen seventeen says, The kingdom of God is not to be found in eating and drinking, but in righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Now, gang, without getting bogged down in Paul's whole argument of Romans 14, you got to know this much. You got to know that verse 17 is found in the middle of a paragraph where Paul is dealing with the use and abuse of Christian liberty. That's where it's located. But while he is in that discussion, he gives us some kind of input about how to define the kingdom of God. He does it negatively and he does it positively. First, he says, the kingdom of God isn't. Gang, look at, look at your Bibles. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Now you gotta know this. The, the two words, eating and drinking, form a Hebrew idiom. It's a, it's a catch-all phrase that's not describing so much eating and drinking as it describes a lifestyle. A lifestyle that is lived primarily based on pleasure. Sensual, fleshly, hedonism. We're not talking about simply eating and drinking, or we, that's included. But we're talking about a lifestyle where pleasure and comfort and ease is emphasized. Which, for many, is a fair degree of summary about beauty. We know about that lifestyle, don't we? In large measure, it's our lifestyle. We might not have it down as well as some. I mean, there are some that really outstrip us when it comes to this lifestyle of eating and drinking. I mean, uh, Jack Welch. You know that name? The, uh, the former CEO of General Electric, who got some pretty bad press over his numerous failed, divorce, uh, failed marriages. But just recently, Jack Welch underwent open-heart surgery, and a reporter asked him, um, Jack, did you learn anything from this ordeal? And this is what he said. He said, yeah, I learned something. I learned that I didn't spend enough money. And I am making a vow 
that I will never again allow a bottle of wine that costs less than $100 a bottle to ever cross these lips. Is there any doubt about how Jack Welch defines beauty? How about John Fort, the uh, former CEO of Tyco? He's quoted as having said, I was put on this earth to increase profits per share or earnings per share. Money is how we keep score. Gang, we might not make as much of that lifestyle as they do, but we know a whole lot about that lifestyle. We love fancy restaurants and fancy meals and instant gratification. And yet, what about 24 hours later or 48 hours later? The food's gone. The experience is gone. It's all so short-lived. Everything in the other kingdom is. The word is ephemeral. It's fleeting. Gang, I want to give you a couple of, at least one other illustration. But I, I, I got to say this before I do it. Because I, I think some of you are going to be a tad offended. I want to talk to you about sex. And I know that your children are here. And I, I've wrestled with that. I, want, I don't take this lightly. But I'm telling you, the fourth graders are talking about it in the, in the seats at the movie theaters. This pulpit in this church has to give you some kind of biblical input concerning this issue. Gang, I, I, I'm not trying to um, um, act like some old age Victorian. But I am saying that sex is one of the issues that has been raised almost to divine status in our day. And so I've got to say something. So, having said that, I read this story out of a... Out of a uh, Philip Yancey book. He's got a friend who is a priest. And um, the priest, of course, is, lives a celibate lifestyle. And the, uh, and the priest began to suspect the transcendent value of, of sex. And so he, he conducted his own little survey. And what he was doing is that he would examine the faces of the people um, that he rode in the commuter train with to his office every morning. Because, as uh, one survey would suggest, one out of every three or four people have engaged in some kind of sexual activity the previous night. And so he tried to study the faces of the people he was riding the train with, and he came to this conclusion. They're no different. They're no happier. They're no more fulfilled. They're no more transformed. And he, he concludes his survey with this question. Shouldn't something as powerful as sex is promised to be have a more lasting effect than this? Well, shouldn't it? We downright worship the thing. Shouldn't it be making us happier people? Gang, I'm suggesting, what I'm suggesting is that the, the lifestyle of eating and drinking, it promises you something that it can never deliver. It doesn't deliver because it can't deliver. Folks, there was a recent survey done, and I don't know how much stock you can put in these surveys, but I'll show it to you if you'd like to see it. A recent survey was done about the people, the happiest people in the world. 
You know where America ranked in terms of the happiest people in the world? (laughs) 16th. You know who came in first? Nigerians. Gang, look at the text. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. Satisfaction, joy, freedom, whatever you want to call it, is not found by eating what I want, drinking what I want, buying what I want, sleeping with whom I want, or from anything else external. And then Paul Paul goes on to say, it's not this, but here's what it is. The kingdom of God is not that, but the kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's people of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's what sets them free. What you sought in the fancy restaurant and got for a few minutes, it's a staple of kingdom living. Guys, you know those red books in the back of your... your, Grab one. It's called a hymnal. Uh, We don't use this thing much, but... I want to sing to you. If you can find hymn number 345. Hymn number 345. We're not going to sing. You're not going to sing. Don't worry. I'm going to sing. This is another John Newton hymn. You know who John Newton is. John Newton wrote Amazing Grace. We love that song. Amazing Grace, you know. But I want you to see this. one. I'm just going to sing the last two lines of the fourth stanza. Hymn number 345. Fading is the world's learning's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show. Stay with me. Solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. You believe that? Guys, how do you define beauty? What is beautiful to you? Because I am uh, here to tell you solid joys and lasting pleasure. None but Zion's children. None but those who are members of the kingdom of God. No. Do you believe that? Think about it. How many of us wouldn't immediately exchange status for meaning? How many of us immediately wouldn't exchange a good house for a good life? Or exchange success for peace. You do know, don't you, ladies and gentlemen, but we're the ones that's got the revolver in the bedstand, don't you? 
We're the ones that's got to have a gun to protect all of our stuff. How many of us wouldn't immediately exchange wealth for happiness? How many of us wouldn't immediately exchange the life of eating and drinking for a life of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit? Okay? If that's so, tell me this. Where then do you think you and I ought to be investing our time and our resources? Folks, it's the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit that is vital when it comes time to define the beautiful. And if that is what you want, you're going to have to go to Him and get it. Because you're not going to get it any other place. Our Father, I pray that God the Holy Spirit would so convince us that that's the truth. That we would adjust our schedule. That we would adjust our priorities. That we would find our, the way that we are investing our lives. We, that, we, that would change. So that we might know the beauties of righteousness and joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. Might those things flood our soul, Father. Forgive us that we have for so many years lived under principles and values that the world gave us. And we still feel that our cars are out of alignment. The frame's bent, Lord. And we can't by our wills and determination straighten the frame So, oh, Holy Spirit, straighten our frames. Might we begin to know what it means to ride with pleasure, with joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. Do that for us, oh God. Because we know we can't do it for ourselves. We commit ourselves to that, and we do so in the name of Christ Jesus the Lord.